0: So we've been talking, uh, we're in part two of a series, we've been talking about killing it, and by it we're referring to pride. And uh, We talked about how pride is a very dangerous thing. There's a 16th century Anglican priest that had a really good quote about pride, and it's, it defines reality. His name is Richard Hooker. He said this, he said, Pride is a vice which cleaveth, so you know, 16th century, uh, <clears throat> so fast unto the hearts of men that if we were to strip ourselves of all faults one by one, we should undoubtedly find it the very last and hardest to pull, put off. Pride is so close to our hearts that sometimes we don't even know that it's there. And it's so hard to pull off and, and remove it from ourselves because a lot of times we use other words to cover it up. We call it like confidence, you know, we, call it, we, we, we mask it with different words because uh, pride sometimes, it, well I think in most cases, it's the hardest thing to remove from ourselves. And But what we discover <coughs> last week, is this, that if you don't kill your pride, it will eventually kill what is important to you. And last week, we talked about how it ruins our relationships. We think that by showing pride, we're actually saving face. We, you know, we're like, yeah, I'm good at this, I'm good at that, I'm the best at this, I'm the best at that. And in doing so, you think that you're saving your face so most people more people will find you attractive. But the reality is, it's actually belittling the other person for the sake of boosting ourselves. And so for that reason, it's actually... A deterrent. It's the thing that actually puts people off in relationships. So we talked about how pride could destroy important relationships in our lives. <clears throat> today we're going to be talking more about us, how it ruins us, and how it ruins our relationship with God. And today we're going to be talking about it more from like a last week was very practical. Today we're going to be looking at it more from a theological view. Now, if that is like, what does that mean? It means that we're going to be talking about something that's hard to ki- grasp. Okay, and the language that some of the verses we're going to be looking at today was going to show you that it is some like nebulous idea, but we'll find some we'll ground it. We'll have some practical applications uh, towards the end, but (coughs) because what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be looking at how the people who wrote the Bible, and there's about forty authors, forty plus authors who contribute to the Bible. We're going to be talking about how they view this idea of pride, and uh, in order for us to understand what pride looked like to them, we have to first understand a few things. First thing is this first thing is that there is a direct correlation between your relationship with God and the way you view yourself, okay? The way you view yourself and the our relationship with God, sometimes you think are two separate things, but you have to understand this first. This is very important. You have to understand that these two things are knitted into each other. You can't separate the two, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So in order for us to understand what humanity was, how humanity was viewed in the Old Testament, we have to obviously go to the part of the Bible, where people talked about how humanity came to be. So that's Genesis chapter one. And if you understand Genesis chapter one, it starts off with like the first verse that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse two says, <clears throat> now um, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, you know, and then God said, let there be light, right? Do you, guys, you guys are familiar with the first three verses of Genesis one? Now keep in mind that that area of scripture, they're talking about some spiritual being called God, that he's not a physical being. And this is very important to understand. Because following that verse from verse 3 on, we start talking about the six days of creation plus the seventh day where he rested. Okay? So let me put this, the, this list right here. <clears throat> what people discovered when this was first written is that the six days are not just random days. There actually has some interesting relationship between the, between the two. So for example, it says that in day one is light and darkness. God created the light and see separated from the darkness, there's light, you know. Right, day two is sky and the sea, third day was land and plants. Now what's interesting is, after the first three days, the next three days correlates to one, two, and three. So, if day one was light and darkness, what does he do on day four? He creates the sun and the moon to fill the light and darkness, right? Uh, If day two is about sky, the sky and sea, then day five is obviously what occupies the sky and, uh, what is it, sky and sea. Well, that's, you know, that's birds and that's sea creatures, right? And then when God creates land and the plants on that land, he fills that with animals, right? So this is correlation of how God created the world. Now, what's interesting about this is, remember the first three verses I talked about? The first three verses about these spiritual beings? And everything that he's created so far are physical things. And so the question is, what is the one thing that's going to tie these two things together? Spiritual things and physical or earth things. How do we tie these two things in together? Well, these old, <coughs> excuse me, these ancient Jews who study these scriptures day and night, these rabbis and these, these people who call themselves mystics, they study these scriptures really day and night, and they memorized passages. What they discovered is, well, what's interesting is, if God is spirit and everything he created is physical, like earth, then the thing that's going to tie everything together, is next screen, is humans. Humans are both earth, And if you read the passage very carefully, if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, God breathed his spirit into the dirt and became man, okay? Therefore, humanity, you and me, man, woman, everybody here, is both earth and spirit. If there's all these spiritual things happening here, right? And if there's all these things that are earth right here, humans occupy this very unique space where we're actually both. And God created humanity and said, it is very, very good, see everything else he's like sun hmm. that's good earth that's good you know he's creating all these things but when he said and when it came to human beings he said it was very good you and i are very very unique beings in god's creation because we're both spirit and we're both earth like we we have both both those things in together and by the way i'm going to kind of give like a 20 second to right here and kind of give you some interesting thoughts here a lot of Christians think that the ultimate goal is for us to accept Jesus into our lives, and when we die, we become a spirit, and we go off into this la-la land, right? And that's our ultimate goal. What's interesting about that is that if we do that, then we're not very good. When God put earth and spirit together, he said it was very good. But when you die, you lose your, your body, right? That's why there's something called a resurrection, and we'll talk about that on Easter, where... You're, you're eventually going to, your body and your spirit's going to eventually reunite, and then you're going to have this amazing life. But anyways, <clears throat> in the same way, when it came to humanity and we start to remove God's spirit meaning, if you are a human being and you're like, I don't want anything to do with God, everything, that God, everything that's of God inside of me, every image of God inside of me, I want to push out of my life. Well, the ancient Jews believed that, well, if this is humanity and this is animal, that's earth, right, the difference between the two is that one has the spirit of God and the other one doesn't. And so there's this old ancient teaching that started that, that said that the only difference between humanity and and animals is that humans, we have the spirit of God inside of us. And so they said that as when we start to push God's image outside of, like, saying, like, I don't want that part of me. Like, if God is about love, then I don't want to have love in my life. If God is about forgiveness, I don't want to have that in my life. If God is about maturity, then I don't want to have that in my life. And when you start pushing things of God outside, out of your life, they believe that you start to resemble more and more of an animal. And if that sounds crazy to you, I, I totally understand, okay? I'm not saying that you're an animal if you don't have God in your life. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm just saying this is what they used to believe back then. And you'll see hints of that in the Old Testament, and I'll talk about some of them in a few minutes. But what I want you to understand right now here is this, that the ultimate goal of every human being is to be more human. Okay, it's not to become some spiritual being. God, when he created humanity, he said it was good. Therefore, the ultimate goal for human beings is to become more and more human. And we talked about just a few seconds ago, to be human is to be fully earth and fully spirit at the same time. You know, have you heard that thing that says you've become so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good? That's like an imbalance, right? In the same way, you've become so carnal in the ways of the earth, right, that, that you don't have as much of a spiritual life. That's not good either. You need this good balance. And that's what God created us to be. We're both spiritual and we're both physical. You need both of them together to be fully human. <clears throat> Therefore, in order for us to avoid becoming more and more animal-like, They believe that God's presence and influence in our lives makes us more and more human, right? So, if you feel like, gosh, I don't feel like, I feel like a machine sometimes, you know, like I'm just thinking about numbers and, you know, I'm thinking about, I'm just calculating and all that kind of stuff the whole time, and somebody's like, come on, just let loose, enjoy life a little bit, watch a movie, listen to some music, right? That's basically somebody saying, come on, just be more human. You don't feel, I don't feel like I'm talking to a human being right now. I feel like I'm talking to somebody that's always calculating things. Be more human, right? So this is exactly what they believed back then. They believed back then, okay, that the more spirit of God we have inside of this earthly vessel called the body, the more human we become, right? Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at a passage in the Old Testament where this is actually the case, where somebody who tries to push God out of their lives and they become more and more inhuman, if that makes sense, okay? Okay. Now, you don't have to believe if this actually happened or not. The whole point of this passage is, what was the author trying to communicate? Because we have different literary styles, styles today than we did back then. <clears throat> so they use a lot of hyperbole, meaning like they overstate certain things. And sometimes they do that in telling a story. So if this is a stretch of a mind to you, I don't blame you. I just want you to make sure you get the whole point of what the author is trying to communicate. We're going to be looking at the book of Daniel, chapter 4, so let's take a look at that. There's a king, by the way, by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. you probably heard that name before. Nebuchadnezzar is basically the world power at the time. He's the king of Babylon and Babylon's taken over the world, so this is what's happening. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, so just imagine he's walking back and forth, looking at his entire kingdom. This is what he said. Is it not this, the, is, this wait, is not this the great Babylon I have built as a, res, a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So right away you could tell right now, he's Full of himself he thinks that everything that's happened right here is because of him now i don't blame him for thinking that way because a lot of us right we, we do this too we look at the a that we got on the paper we look at the money that we raised for our company we look at the food that we're providing for our family and we look at it and say i worked pretty hard to get this here right and, and there's nothing wrong with that but when you start to forget this key element and we're going to talk about that key element in a second okay Everything goes out of whack. And so let's see what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. <coughs> Even as the words were on his lips, what he was just saying right now, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. Now, what he means mean by taken from you implies that God actually gave it to him in the first place. But is that true? Um, years and years and years ago, um, um, had... Are you guys familiar with The Simpsons? And I know you guys are familiar with The Simpsons, but I just know some Christians are like, oh, we're not allowed to watch The Simpsons. So let's pretend that we don't know what The Simpsons are. Let me explain to you, okay? There was a scene a long time ago. It was like season one, two, or three, and totally in the beginning, okay, where the family's sitting around the table, and they're about to say grace. And so Homer, that's the dad, in case you don't know The Simpsons, Homer tells his son, that's, his name is Bart, if you don't know The Simpsons, right? <clears throat> and he says, would you say grace for us? And Bart, being the bratty kid that he is, he says, sure, Dad. And he says, okay, this is what he says. He says, dear God, we pay for this stuff, so 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 thanks for nothing. Amen. And then Homer goes and chokes his son and says, what are you saying, right? Now, it's really interesting because I read this book. It's called The Gospels According to the Simpsons. And basically, in this book, it's basically saying, when Bart prayed that prayer, I mean, we call that like, you know, heresy or whatever you want to call it, right? But don't you think he has a point? And this author who's a Christian says, Maybe he actually voiced something that we all had in our minds. That like, wait, wait a minute. Don't it's true. Like, the f- Homer, the dad, he works at a nuclear power plant. He works, he hates his job, but he works day and night so he can bring a paycheck to his family. And then with the little money that he makes, they try to scrap all the things together to pay for this meal that they had. It's like, doesn't Bart have a good point here? That it was the family that worked really hard to get this money and this food on the table. But what he's forgetting here is this, Okay. Who created the system in which somebody says, if I worked really hard, then I would get a paycheck? And who created the system in which, where I said, if I had this thing called a paycheck, I could go to a place called a grocery store, which happens to have everything I ever need to buy, right? And by the way, let me go back a little bit more by the way, who gave us the hands and feet that able, enables us to do this work, right? Or if you're a teacher, like, who gave you the brain to actually memorize all the information you need in order to teach other people? Basically what this person, this author, was saying was this. He's saying, yes, technically it was you who worked really hard to make it work. But it's like a director of a movie coming out and saying, hey, guys, I made the amazing movie. It got the best ratings. and I just want to say I want to thank myself for it without realizing there's this whole crew in the background that's working really, really hard. And there's this actress and actor who worked really, really hard. And behind that, there's probably some coaches that taught those actors and actresses to be the best they can be. And behind that, there are probably parents who gave them birth. And behind that, right, very very rarely when you say, like, hey, you know, I want to thank me for doing all this stuff, there's usually a lot more people who are involved in it. And here King Nebuchadnezzar is looking at his kingdom thinking, it was me and only me that I did this, and I'm the one that should be thankful for this. In other words, he's actually removing God from the equation, saying every good and perfect thing I have here was because of me, not because of God. He, I think at one point, scholars think that at one point, he actually understood that the gift that he has was actually from God. But when he got everything he wanted, he wanted to take credit for himself, so he pushed God out. So this is when God is like, Are you seriously not thanking me for this? You think this is all you? You think this is all because of your two hands and the way that you commanded people? Who gave you that charisma, you know, right? So he's like, you know what? If you don't want me to be a part of your whole thing, then I'm going to take myself out of the equation and not just me, but everything that I stand for out of this equation. That includes your sanity. He's like, you didn't know this, right? Nebuchadnezzar, the reason that you're able to speak eloquently is because of me. So I'm going to take that too. So this is what happens. Next verse. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like ox, like the ox, seven times and by seven times—that's seven periods of time. So it could be seven years, seventy years. It could be seventy months, seven months, seven weeks. We don't know, but just as seven times, seven units of a time, will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone He wishes. He's like God's like, I gave this to you. I gave you the tools to let you do the things that you did. And if you're not gonna acknowledge that, then I'm just gonna take it away from you. And I could give it to somebody else if I feel like it. Next verse. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. I was like, King, what are you doing? eating grass okay (laughs) his body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nail like the claws of a bird your mighty king is now this animal now like i said this is kind of like really this really happened really like uh just keep in mind what was daniel like the author of the book of daniel what was he trying to convey to us what was the point he might use some hyperbole here and there right and that's not the point. If you believe this or not, or if you think he's overstating it, that's not the point. The point is, what was the point that he was trying to make here? And the point he was trying to make here is this. He pushed God out so much that he started to resemble more and more of an animal. This is a reference back to Genesis chapter 1. We talked about this, right? <clears throat> These people believed that when Nebuchadnezzar started pushing God out, God said, fine, if you want me out, I'm leaving, but I'm taking my stuff with me, Right? then he realized that he started to lose all that stuff, right? In other words, what we learned from this story is this. That pride pushes God out of our lives. Pride pushes God out of our lives. And that's not the only thing. Because pushing God out of our lives makes us less human. Remember, the way we view ourselves, is if it's filled with pride, we're basically pushing God out of the picture. And this isn't the only passage in the Bible that talks about this. As a matter of fact, in the middle of the Bible... There's a whole collection of songs called the psalms okay and one of them talks about this this is chapter 10 and in this psalm there's two people involved okay first is a person who's telling the song and another is a, another person that he's observing so there's two people in this story so he starts off by saying why lord do you stand far off now implied in this question is that the author is not the one that's far from god that it's god that's far from the author okay do you catch that so far he's like why are you standing so far from me right why do you hide yourself in times of trouble, it's like, God, I'm doing everything I can. I'm praying to you. I'm asking for you. you know, I'm doing everything I can. I'm even fasting sometimes. Why, why are you so far from me? And at this point, God knocks on his heart and says, look around you. Look around you. Look at that other guy over there. Look at that other guy over there. Tell me why God is far from him. And so he looks at the person and he continues from verse two. He says, in his arrogance, he's talking about this person over here, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the scheme he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. So what he says is, this guy over here that I'm talking about right here, he's so full of pride, right? He does all these things and he even brags about the things that he's doing that's wrong, that just comes out of his urges and desires, right? And, he's, and, and then in, in his process, he realizes if I'm living like this, I can not have God watching me live my life like this. So out of his pride, he pushes God out. So he's over here, the author who's watching this. And he's like, I can see why God doesn't want to go near that guy because that guy won't let God, he won't let God near into his life, right? And then he looks at and he's like, oh, is that my issue, Lord? Okay, so he, con- he concludes by saying this. In this person's pride, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. There's a lot of people in this world who say, I don't believe in God. There's actually a very famous atheist that passed away about 10 years ago who said this, He's on his deathbed, this is what he said, it's not that I don't believe in God, it's that I didn't want him to exist. In our lifestyles that we love so much, there's so much pride that's in there that we basically say, I don't want God in my life. It's not that I don't believe that he exists. If I look for the evidence, I could probably find it, right? But, there's, but basically what this psalmist is saying in most cases, people push God out of their lives because they don't want God watching them. In his pride, he pushes God out. There's no room for God. Last week, I shared a, a, a quote from, you, from this book, Mere Christianity, by a guy named C.S. Lewis. Here's another quote from that same book. <coughs> as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and, on, of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Isn't that true? A lot of times we look at the things, like we look at how powerful we are, how awesome we are, and we look down upon other people because of the things we've accomplished. It's like in, in the Old Testament, Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, right? Pharaoh looks down on the slaves, but what he doesn't realize is that those slaves that built the kingdom for him. They're busy looking down and full, so full in themselves that they don't acknowledge that there's a higher power above them. And he said, this is why it's so dangerous. The way that we see God and the way we view ourselves are directly connected. And God is a high inconvenience for you if you are full of yourself. That's what the psalmist is saying here. So you're like, oh, God, I don't know. Because, you know, the other day I was kind of bragging to my friends about how I accomplished so much. Um, Am I going to turn into an animal? Again, no, you're not going to turn into an animal. You might feel like you're less human or your friends might look at you and say, hey, like there's something that was so bright about you that I feel like it's starting to dim. You know, I, like, you know, you've probably seen other people in your life, right, where they start to get so full of themselves that you just don't wanna hang out with them anymore because they seem less, like, less human. You know, that's what Daniel was trying to talk about here. <clears throat> but you see, Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't so far off because he found his way back to sanity because he discovered what he was lacking in his life. You see, this is Daniel chapter 4, verse, verse 34. This is what happens. At the end of that time, of the seven times, or whatever the time was, I, Nebuchadnezzar, so he's speaking on behalf of himself, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. He realizes, it wasn't just me who got this kingdom to be the way it is. If it wasn't for God, none of this would be possible. I just happened to be lucky that God blessed me this way. I happened to have powerful parents who gave me the power to take over (laughs) more land, or I happened to have the right words that I could speak to inspire people to follow my commands. Like, I realized it's not just me, that there was other people involved, and most of all, God, who really helped me out here. And then a few verses later, he talks about this more, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, the word humble is a really interesting word. Now, let me talk about this for a second. I think in many cultures, we think humility and being humble is our way of saying, oh, God, you're so good at preaching. Oh, no, 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 no. Hey, you're so good at basketball. Oh, no, I'm really bad at basketball. (laughs) Like, you are so good at drawing. Oh, this chicken scratch? (laughs) You are so good at playing guitar. Really? I was just, you know, I was just doing this and I just happened to make music, right? We think that's humility. Okay? And it's not. Some people call that false humility, okay? Let me be clear about what humility is. Humility is not putting yourself down. Okay, think about it this way. If God blessed you, if God said, "I have this amazing gift and I want to give it to you." You're the best I don't know, fill in the blank. You're the best football player or you're the best tennis player. You're the best student. You know, let's just say student, right? You're the best student, and I give you this ability to study and to memorize and to regurgitate whatever the professor said. You know, I gave this to you. Now, okay, and that is the gift. My spirit is in you, and that is the gift I gave you. And at that point, you said, oh, this gift? No, it's nothing. What are you doing? You're diminishing the image of God inside of you. God is supposed to be glorified through that gift that you have, and instead you're saying, oh, that's nothing. How is God happy about that? So what is humility? If pride is a way of saying, if this is who you are, and you're saying that you're this much better than everybody else, right, then the opposite is also bad to say that you're this much lower than who you really are. Humility is when you actually define reality. Who are you really? If somebody says, hey, you're so good at doing this, for you to say, thank you so much for recognizing how good I am at this. You know, I just want to say that, you know, I didn't get here by myself. God actually helped me with this. Or I had great teachers who taught me how to do this. You're so good at the computer. (laughs) Well, you know, um, I had a teacher who taught me everything, but thank you so much for recognizing. That's humility. Humility is being able to say, this is exactly where I am right now, to define who you are and how you got there. Because the very thing that people are praising you about could be the very image of God that's inside of you that they're trying to recognize. Now, for you to say, yeah, that's me, that's all me, that's, that's wrong too. Just to be able to say, this is who I really am, thank you for recognizing it, but I just want to say there's a lot of people who work behind the scenes to get me here to where I am. That is humility. Okay, so, so what he's saying here is, King Nebuchadnezzar, in his weird wild animal state, he started to discover, this is who I really am. Without God, I'm just an animal with crazy hair, you know? I need to recognize that it's God who actually brought me to this place. And when he recognized the reality of the matter, that is when he was given the second chance. And so what do we call that when we look at God and we recognize him for what he's done in our lives? What do we call that? We call that worship. So therefore, worship reminds us that everything God has given us is a gift. This is where things get really practical. Monday through Saturday, everything that we watch on TV, everything that's, every advertisement that's thrown at us always says, hey, you're the man, you're the woman, you're the one that, you know, you have it your way right away. You're, you know, like, you could watch any show you want at any time. Back in my day, if you only hear a certain song, you have to wait until the radio got to that song. Now you can just download that song on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever, right? Because it's your way now, right? You're the king. You make demands, and the things that you want happens immediately, right that's everyday we have these liturgies in our lives that remind us that we're at the center of the world then we gather on sunday and we sing songs about how god is the center at the, is at the center of the earth and when we feel like we're at the center of the world the world is revolving around us maybe possibly it's because we're standing really close to the one that the world revolves around worship is our weekly reminder that we are not the ones that created our lives Every Sunday when we sing songs to God, we're reminded that He is the one that has made everything happen, that every good and perfect gift came from Him, not from me. He might have partnered with me to make something good happen, but without Him, I would not be able to do these things. Worship is a very integral part of our lives because it's part of the thing that reminds us that we're not the center of the universe. And He reminds you, I know you accomplished a lot with your life, but who gave you your life in the first place? That air that's in your lungs who gave you that air that you could breathe so that you could do these things, right? The very desire and the fire inside of you to get, you know, to recognize injustice and do something about it, who gave you that? You see, worship is a very integral part of humility, of killing pride, because remember, if we don't kill pride, pride will eventually kill your relationships, it's gonna kill you, and it's eventually gonna push God out of your life, and we don't want that. And this is why we worship, because we want to fix our eyes not on ourselves, not on the people below us, but on the one that's above us that oversees everything. And that's what worship is. So what we're going to do right now is this. We're going to worship. And no surprise. (laughs) Because we want to kill that pride that's inside of all of you guys. No, you guys are. You guys are good. This is for the people who are listening online. (laughs) You guys are good. I know you guys are good. Okay. So if you're here, you're lucky because you're not condemned. Okay. So what we're going to do is I'm going to close in prayer. And I'm going to say a prayer that's going to help us fix our hearts on God. And as we're doing that, the worship team is going to come up. And uh, they're going to lead us in three songs about how we need to fix our eyes on him. Amen? Okay, let me pray for all of us.